Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. For our guest this week, we have fingerstyle whiz and Berklee guitar professor Guy Van Duzer. A master of the fingerstyle country guitar, Guy has been a bright light in the guitar world for decades. He's performed on a Prairie Home Companion at many guitar festivals and recorded tons of great albums. One album with his longtime collaborator Billy Novick was recorded right here in the Boston area at Club Passim in Cambridge. It's called Raisin the Rent, it's on Rounder Records, and I highly suggest you check it out, both for the great music and the incredible album cover, which has a great picture of them right in front of Passim, where the club still is today. A brief aside, legendary bluegrass flat picker Tony Rice left us in late December, about three weeks before this episode is airing. You know, Guy actually performed uh, with Tony for some time, playing bass with him, as a matter of fact. goes without saying that Tony Rice will be greatly missed. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Guy Van Duzer. you guys doing? <laughs> it's great to see you, Guy. Um, welcome, everybody. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department. Welcome to another Coffee Talk with our guest, Guy Van Duzer, today. And uh, we have Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair. Hello, everyone. Coffee cheers. And Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ian. Hey, all. We've got our guitar department coffee mugs. And Guy, you've got quite a beautiful coffee mug there. Well, this is a big one because when I make coffee, it's a project. I put in, it's got hot chocolate powder in it and it's got almond milk in it, it's got honey in it and all the, it's a, it's a breakfast. It's a meal in a cup really is what it is. So that was, that's our first question is how do you take your coffee? And that's quite elaborate. And I actually do remember that because specifically we uh, ordered hot chocolate for the guitar department office. That's exactly for right. For you. Guess who's, yeah, guess who started that idea? <laughs> well, it was a brilliant idea, I think. Well, Ben was right with me, you know, he was right on it. The next thing, next thing I knew it was there, you know. Yeah, there. Ben doesn't miss a beat. He really also knows. An espresso machine mm -hmm. as well, like the one that he got. So that's actually how I, I do it with capsules. So that way I can mm. get in different flavors of coffee to go with it. I forget what I'm having this morning. I think it's um, mocha butter butterscotch or something like that, that I, like I like to play. <laughs> make it do all kinds of things just a straight cup of coffee i've had those you know ah, well there's so many things that are going to be parallels in your story that you're going to tell us to the way you make your coffee so that's fantastic um so guy the first question after the coffee discussion that we start with is can you tell us a little bit about your first days at berkeley like what, what did it feel like? What was it like? How did you enter into the guitar department realm? And uh, you know, what are, what are your thoughts about that looking back? Well, I, I was really excited to come. And uh, actually I should include a little bit of how I got here, which is that Rick Peckham, who was assistant chair at that time, this was in uh, 2008, um, right around Christmas time, I think he called me up and he, he didn't even really say who he was. He just said he wanted to take lessons with me because he'd heard my recordings on the radio. 
and he was really interested in fingerstyle. He said he'd never done it. He always played with a pick, you know. So, so we agreed, and he came over to the house, and and I guess we spent about two hours together, just you know talking about it. And he said, "Show me this, and show me that." You know, Rick. You know, he was into everything immediately. And then he said, "Okay, this is great, man. I'll be back in two weeks. Let's do it again." So he came back in two weeks, and I was kind of flabbergasted because uh, he had asked if he could record the lesson on his little Zoom thing machine. And I said, sure. So when he came back, he had everything written out in finale that we had talked about. He had completely transcribed the whole lesson. And I'm thinking to myself, where do you get students like this, man? This is incredible. But, you know, he uses he uses uh, finale like I read TV Guide. It's just nothing to it for him. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we, we had another lesson. And then he asked me, you know, if I would like to come and teach at Berkeley. And I said, yeah. Sure, I'd be, uh, I'd be delighted. I guess I said, let me think about it. Okay, I've thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he said, uh, you know, because of how old I was and everything, he said, well, we'll just. I said, it's kind of late to start a career there, and he said, don't worry, well, you can come in as a professor. And I said, great, you know, thank you very much. That gives me extra, you know, benefits and things like that. He said, okay, we're on. And so my first day at Berkeley, I came in there as a professor, and I found that I had a complete schedule. I had two seniors on the schedule who all of a sudden, here I am supposed to teach um, triad cycles too, you know, all the way to the, the final 48 by 48. I had never heard of it because uh, truth be told, I taught, uh, I taught an independent study class for Harvard for a few years, about 40 years ago. And then I moved on into uh, animation and, and graphic arts and, and didn't do anything more except private teaching for a while. So I had never taught um, really at a, a college level and, you know, just some private students. I had no idea. I quick got a copy of what the proficiency exams looked like. And I looked at those and I thought, okay, this, I guess this is what I'm supposed to start teaching with. So I did, you know, and we just went from there. And I had my own way of playing scales because I was uh, formal. My only formal guitar was my own self-teaching from Segovia and classical guitar scale. So I fingered everything that way and I had shifts all over the place. And I had never seen any of Bill Levitt's methods or anything. So I literally, I com- I'm confessing here, I came into Berkeley without the slightest idea of what I was supposed to do, except I knew they had to pass that proficiency exam. And I knew I had to, as always, keep them interested in guitar. So basically my formula has always been when a student comes in for their lesson, I say, what would you like to do today? Mm. As long as we're sure that we pass that exam at the end of the semester, let's just get to work, you know, and whatever you are the most interested in, which was fingerstyle. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that was uh, both reassuring and confronting was that immediately I had, I think, nine professors in the guitar department ask if they could take lessons with me. Mm. And that was very reassuring and scary at the same time. You know? <laughs> Here I am, I'm going to show them, you know what I know, and I had a pretty good sense of what they knew. So, it, but it was wonderful. It was really wonderful because it was a two-way street immediately. And all the, all the other professors that I worked with, um, I guess some of the first ones were like John Finn and, and um, um, gosh, I can't think of all the names, so at least a half a dozen. Um, and we all just had a great time comparing styles because there, there wasn't very much finger style going on back in 2008, Kim, you weren't here yet. 
Cheryl, I know you were around, but you I don't know how much fingerstyle you do. I don't think you're that much into it. So I was kind of pioneering the style. Dan Bowden, who also took some lessons from me, was the other the other guy who could play, you know, the old blues guitar styles and everything. But um, he had a lot of questions from me because I was more in the country. Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed and, and people like that. Lenny Bro, who was a personal friend of mine. So I had a lot of connections and a lot to offer that way because I knew Chet, I knew Jerry Reed, I knew Lenny um, and Doc Watts and all those guys. They were my friends from having toured for years and years on the, the various uh, folk, mostly on the uh, folk festival circuits was how I met uh, most of them. And of course I met Chet through that stars and stripes thing because uh, <laughs> I had arranged that. And that's how I, Lauren and I got to be friends too, Lauren Passarelli, because uh, I, she let me know that that was one of her senior recital pieces. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is just too good. And we also both love the Beatles. So That's that, fantastic. That was, that was the other thing that uh, we immediately linked up. Um, so I felt at home right away. I felt very comfortable at Berkeley. I was just really nervous that I wasn't, for a while, that I wasn't teaching things right or anything. But uh, after I became known, for a while, uh, my, I, I began to have repeat students. They would come come back and say, I, I want more of you. And I felt like, okay, I must I must be doing things right. And they were passing exams. They were you know, getting uh, what they needed to get done, done. Mm -hmm. And the finger style, I guess, was catching on because we kept picking up more people. Bobby Stanton came along and, and uh, our classical, classical we've, we've added a couple people there. So yeah, it's growing, you know, this idea of playing the guitar with just your hands, mm -hmm. it's is really, really getting someplace. That's fantastic. I, I thought of two things while you were talking. And one was you've really come up in an oral tradition. That's a real community of fingerstyle players. A lot yeah. of people think of it as Nashville centric, but it's much wider than that. There's a lot of people from all over the world really in this community. And you've been at the center of that community for a long time. Yeah. And, I, and you made this reference about how these connections are made by saying, oh, the stars and stripes thing. Uh -huh. So I'm wondering if you can kind of weave some thoughts together and talk about what that is like being in an oral tradition community like that, how you learn by getting to know people and maybe use the stars and stripes as an example of how you ended up working with Chet Atkins. And then talk about how does that translate into a school like Berkeley where you have an oral tradition, but in an organized curriculum in a place where people come for a number of years, like how does that all work for you? Mm, boy. In your life. You could talk about that probably for the next pot of coffee, but that's, that's a nice, <laughs> that ought to do it. You know? <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and have some, no, you don't have to, to speak for the whole hour, but I, I just, um, I just think that's such a, it's a wonderful tradition that you've all preserved so beautifully through your relationships in fingerstyle guitar. And, um, I think it'd be fun for people to hear about that a little bit. It's just to bounce off something very quickly, the uh, webinar that was broadcast last week from the uh, base department mm -hmm. uh, featured, um, um, oh, now here's where I'm going to get in trouble because I, uh, I have trouble with names. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was a conversation. Mm -hmm. 
is maybe we better edit this part out because <laughs> no, keep going. You're doing great. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, it was Ron Carter. It just takes mm -hmm. a minute for the for it to gel. And he was uh, talking with uh, Steve Bailey, I think it was, about how um, how he got started in the in the you know in the business of you know playing with all the great jazz players. They featured Wes Montgomery and, and a couple other people that he had worked with. And he surprised everybody, I think, in the webinar by being so much into this idea, the oral tradition. He got into it by meeting people and playing with them. He walked into the studio and I, he, he was ready. I mean, he could read with the first session he did with Wes Montgomery. Uh, and he was all set to have, you know, charts and everything. And nobody had any charts. The horn players who were going to do, do the section stuff had charts and everything else was just, okay, we're, this is the key we're in. Here we go. And they, they just started to play and started to record. And it was all, I think of that as, as the oral tradition. I'm not a great reader. I can do it. But reading for me is more like puzzle solving. I can get the information off the page. But I can't do anything with it until I get, off, get it off the page. And so I think of music as, a, as an encyclopedia, as a reference system. And if I want to work on an arrangement, first thing I've got to do is to just memorize it. And then I can start learning to play. There's a saying from someplace that says you can't do anything well until you cease to think about the manner of doing it. Mm. And for me, that means, all right, get the music, fine, get it in there, but you don't practice by sight reading it. You, you get it. And most of it I got from listening to recordings. And that's how I got into Chet too, was I started playing fingerstyle by listening to Chet's, uh, Chet Atkins records. We didn't have YouTube. And, uh, you know, we didn't have all the, I don't even think tablature had been invented yet when I was starting to do that. The, the, the books consisted of Mel Bay, one and two, you know, mm. and, and that was about it. That was all that you had for guidance. And then after that, you just, uh, unless you were studying strict classical guitar, Aaron Shearer and people like that were already around. Uh, but I was into the, I was into Chet and that was the only place to get in was the records or on TV. And so the thing that that did for me is uh, it got me started learning directly from the sounds mm -hmm. so that because it was all I, I had to listen to the record. I would just move the needle back and forth. Most of my Chet Atkins LPs play right through to the other side now when I put them on because they're so worn through. <laughs> but the, uh, that was the idea. I would just listen over and over again and I would locate that sound. I didn't even think of them as notes. I wasn't thinking of them as musical notes. They were the sounds of the melody. You know, Mr. Sandman went up and down the fretboard and I would follow that sound up and down the strings. And just, uh, I'd, I'd start with cut number one of a Chet Atkins LP. I've got about 40 of them. And I would just work my way through the entire side of the record by ear. And so I just developed a, co a quick relative relationship with where the sounds are on the, on the fretboard. Where are the sounds that I want to hear and the ones that I want to play? Um, which actually kind of leads to an overall philosophy of music for me, which is that you learn to play an instrument because you, there are things that you want to play. You want to play songs, you, whatever you, whatever kind of music you want to play, you go grab that instrument and you want to learn how to play it so you can do that. Not necessarily so that you can become a machine gun scale player, but so that you can play Mr. Sandman if you want to. Mm -hmm. When I start my Chet lab, I always have at least one student. Are we going to do Mr. Sandman? It's a very popular. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Okay, so that is like the part A of oral, right? A U R A L. That's going to be by ear. Part B of oral is, is O R A L. Can you talk about 
can you talk about that for a minute? O R A L, like like learning from the players and right. and building right. your relationships. Well, I started out with Chet partly because there wasn't anybody else around where I lived. I lived out in the in the country, and there weren't people sitting around, you know, playing guitar all the time. And I could hear that Chet's was a solo style, so I could just sit and play it, and I could enjoy myself. But then I got into a band in high school and began to get into the music. The Beatles came along, of course, and I got into the songs. And then I started, uh, once I got into uh, college, I went out to the Oberlin Conservatory and I started meeting other people who could play. And um, I started playing with them. And immediately I started to learn. I started to see other ways that people were thinking. And it always grabbed me. And just about everybody that I met was very friendly about it. That I would say about the oral tradition. Most of the people who are really serious about it and who are really good at it are very friendly. They're very supportive. You want to, you know, you want to get into it with them. One of the strong people I played at the beginning with was Eric Schonberg, who had made a recording with his cousin called the New Ragtime Guitar. And that was all fingerstyle. That was the Joplin craze. That was, and I wanted to get into that. And there was Eric. He lived down this down the road in the next town over in New Jersey. So we met each other and we just got into the habit. I'd go over there on Saturday nights. I'd take my lady with me and he had his and they would we'd all get pizza and we would just sit there for the rest of Saturday night and play the blues mm. and play the blues around and around and around. And we got so that we were really comfortable with each other. We started doing gigs together. Uh, and then I, again, I started meet, meeting more people. When I came to Boston, one of the first people I met was a bluegrass banjo player. And that opened me to up to an entirely new kind of music. I wasn't into bluegrass particularly, but he was good. And he showed me the right people. You know, he started teaching me Ralph Stanley songs and he introduced me to other players in the Boston area, Friends of Bluegrass. And the next thing I knew I was uh, in a bluegrass band playing guitar and also playing bass. And that helped me too, because suddenly I found myself on another instrument and that was contributing to my musical education as well because i had just imitated chet whenever i wanted bass notes i just did whatever he did but then suddenly i found i was just holding the bass in my hands by itself and making that do its job and i found that i was the heartbeat of a band mm -hmm. and suddenly being rhythmic and really feeling the beat was so much more important than it had been before because that was my chief responsibility there and also, I was surrounded by excellent players. Our, our lead guitarist was Oren Starr, who went out to Winfield and won the national championship that same year on both guitar and mandolin. And so then I got into mandolin and started playing that because I liked that. And uh, then- I got a uh, transcription of Oren's so I'm back still here in a <laughs> stack I'm, of papers, actually. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm sorry, Ian? Oh, I'm saying I have a transcription of Oren's back here in a stack of papers. <laughs> oh, he could play. He really, really had that snap sound. And he was also very friendly. And he and I used to work on duets together. We'd, we'd practice that way. And then almost immediately, I'm still only like, I guess, 22. And I meet uh, Billy Novick. Mm -hmm. He is an entirely different animal because he's not a string player. He's playing the woodwinds. And he played his had main instruments were alto and clarinet. And uh, we ended up meeting each other because by that time I was accompanying dance classes on the guitar. And that's something else that I recommend to my students is that they get into using whatever skill they have in some, some way 
that if, if possible playing playing dance classes or accompanying something uh, so that you're using what you whatever you know up to that point to try to create you know music for the occasion so that you're actually you're you're working you know they're not just hacking around with each other I played dance classes for dance circle here in Boston for about 10 years. And that was a wonderful experience because there I wasn't working with other musicians. I was solo again, but see, I get off to topic pretty easy, but, but in the process, well, well, what you did was you had a, a dance teacher in front of the class and there'd be, you know, maybe a dozen people in the class ready to follow the movements. And the way you teach dance is strictly by imitation. This is modern dance. And so you uh, you had an instructor up there would count maybe 16 counts and they would do what was called a combination, which was this, and then you went there and then you moved and you turned and whatever her sequence of movements was. And she would demonstrate to that class or he would demonstrate that to the class once. And the class is watching and they're trying to memorize what they're seeing because that's the skill they need to acquire is to learn choreography from watching somebody else do it. Uh, other than lab notation, it's very difficult to write choreography down. That is its own kind of oral tradition because you have to learn it by imitation. So they'd get to see it once and I'd get to see it once. And then I'm sitting there in the corner with my guitar ready to play and I get one chance to watch those 16 counts go by and then I have to play something, some kind of piece. I either have to remember something I know that would fit that music or the easiest thing turned out to be just to improvise something, just to start working with chords and melodies. And it all usually has kind of a new age feel to it because they, they weren't looking for specific pieces. They just wanted the right rhythm and the right feel. And that led me into making stuff up and, and composing. And uh, I just did that over and over. You do that for an hour and a half, three times a week for 10 years, and you've made up a lot of stuff. And you know, you, you end up using the same things over and over again, but that's part of the process is finding what you're most comfortable with. Hey, and Guy, um, what I love about that, well, there's a couple things because I was thinking about, you know, when you play, you're playing solo, especially, you know, you do these, you know, I don't even know how many fingers you have. You have a couple hidden there. <laughs> either hand, I know you kind of press. Anyway, you get all this stuff going, but your sense of time, is impeccable when you're doing that things particularly you know that you're playing bass so it was interesting you're saying when you played bass it really made you consider that function in uh, you know which you're doing already on the guitar but it, you know as you said it really made you deepen in that like the pulse of it it's about the pulse and the groove but also i really love what you're talking about with the dance class because Dance, you know, rhythm is the physical element of music, it, and it makes you want to dance. And and I think that's incredible advice to go not only on the side that you're improvising on that thing, but that the people aren't going to be able to dance to you unless you have a really solid groove. Yeah. And so that I think is amazing. So I love that you, you know, first of all, that's part of your experience, and that's part of your recommendation. But just to ask you about that, how you develop that, or how you encourage your students to develop that sense of pulse and time that so that you really need to do to deliver, especially, okay, I'm sitting here with my guitar and I need to deliver this to you to make a room full of dancers dance or just someone tap their foot. Well, um, one of the things that I do is I break the music down 
in, into its own components, rhythm being one of them, Cheryl. And where does the rhythm come from in a guitar piece? If you're just the guitarist in a band, probably you're playing rhythm guitar. You're supplying the chords and the harmony. So uh, when I teach the Chet class, for example, I teach them right away to make what I call a Chet Atkins open face sandwich. And the way that that works is that the bass line or the bottom line is kind of the bread and it's the bass and the chords. That's what the, the boom chick, boom chick is keeping time uh, for. And instead of taking, Mr. here we go with Mr. Sandman again, instead of taking Mr. Sandman and just, you know, trying to play the whole thing. Well, I don't even know where my pick is. There it is. Um, I'll start them by just this part, Mr. Sandman. sing the melody and you just play the chords and they back up you don't even try to put the whole thing together until you really feel you feel that rhythm first and then the other component of it is the melody and what i do with my students is i ask them to learn the melody separately and i don't care where they finger it i actually started most of the time with happy birthday because what I want them to do is the same thing that I did with those old Chet Atkins records, which is to forget YouTube, forget tablature, just, you know, happy birthday. So play it on your instrument. I'll say, I'll say, just pick a spot, put your finger there. And I'll say, okay, now most of them will make a mistake somewhere in there. And I'll say, okay, what would have helped you not to make a mistake? A template. What is a scale? It's a template. A scale tells you where all the available notes are, and those are the ones you select from. You don't use that one because it's not in the template. So you'll you'll avoid that mistake right from the beginning. So I start to think, teach them to to sort things out, to get the whole arrangement sorted out into its various components. And the rhythm part of it is one of the components. For myself, that came from that really came from both playing the bass, which a lot of times I do the dance classes on bass, by the way, and then I had nothing but the pulse to supply to them. Um, and that was very helpful to me. It helped me concentrate on just that myself. But the other thing, as I started to mention, I ran into Billy Novick, the horn player. Now, here's a cat who can only play one note at a time. He plays eight different instruments, but it's always a solo melodic vocal line. And so when we started to form our duet, there was, I became the rhythm guitarist. At first we had bass and drums, and then we finally chased them away because they were just covering up what I was actually doing because I was playing all those parts myself anyway, just kind of, and they were doubling me. So it was just easier to travel, pack up, less, less fewer microphones, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, so we started working as a duet. So the rhythmic responsibilities were entirely mine. And from him would come the melodic ideas and the idea, the, the solos and a lot of the arrangements. He did a lot of the arranging for me. I learned a tremendous about business, about harmonic arrangements and stuff from, from Billy because he had studied at Berkeley. This is long before I ever, ever went to, uh, had any connection with Berkeley. Um, and uh, what we ended up doing uh, other than, trying to play a few shows was we just tried to work general business. And so we started playing weddings and at weddings, what people want to band for is first they have the cocktails. And then after the ceremony, they want to dance. And so we started playing dance music and the natural thing for a clarinet is to play out of the swing era, the twenties, the thirties, the forties, 
And what that music was for, it was to cheer you up because those are the years of the Great First Depression and then World War II. Uh, so people needed a lot of music to, to help them get through it. And the other thing that it was is music was to dance for, to, to, to dance by. So we played all the different dance music. I learned all the different rhythms, this cha-cha and samba, and because and, people wanted to do those dances. And we played for a lot of dances. In fact, if I may, uh, I'll stick a quick little story in here, uh, which is one of the things I'm most proud of uh, as far as rhythm playing goes, is that Bill and I were hired to play for a, a ballroom swing dance class up in Cambridge in, oh, many, many years ago now. And usually what they did for those classes, it was a big class. It was a dance society. And the particular night that we played, there were 75 couples. That's 150 people out on the dance floor. And we showed up, they, they had heard, yeah, Guy Van Duzer and Billy Novick, you gotta get, gotta get these guys, they play great swing. I don't think they knew that we were a duet. I think they thought they were hiring a swing band. And so there was another, there was just the two of us and we came out on stage and set up our amplifiers and we started to play and they started to dance. And we swung our heads off because we had to, you know, just to try to keep the thing going, stomping at the Savoy, you know, and all the, all the great Goodman tunes. And in fact, it was stomping at the Savoy. I was busy playing. Billy had played his solo and it was my turn to just improvise a solo and still keep the rhythm going at the same time, which has kind of become my, my specialty. And uh, I almost made the fatal mistake of looking up while I was doing it. And uh, I did just quick glance up and looked right back because I realized there are 75 couples out there flipping each other, doing the Lindy, doing all of these different things, totally relying on the rhythm that this one little nylon string guitar was putting out in that great big ballroom hall. That was it. And it was, I was driving the entire evening with just one guitar. And it, I was flabbergasted, even myself, because it was working. It was happening and we finished the evening and they said, we love you, we gotta have you guys back. And, and it's just one of, the, one of the best musical moments in my career, I think, was being able to carry, carry off an entire ballroom with one guitar. That, that's incredible, and I can see that as you describe it, and it sounds incredible, and that always le lends credence to this, you know, student comes in and says, oh, I rely on the bass and drums when their time isn't strong, you know what I mean? And I'm like, mm. so there's a story where you feel that, it, it, you feel that inside so strongly, and that's what you've got to put out there, and you can make a whole ballroom dance with your nylon string guitar because you're feeling it and you're delivering it so powerfully. That's, well, that's a incredible. I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. I have a friend down in, in Alabama who says, he, tells me, he says, I can't touch anything without making it swing. I am trapped in what I can actually do. I can't not play swing. I, I, it's, just, it's just part of me, like breathing, that it's got to swing and it's got to be in time. And so I think just I transmit, transmit that just being in the same room with my students. I think they can sense that, you know, as soon as I start to play that this, this is something that this is about and that they want to pick up on and, and get into, which kind of brings us back to the oral tradition again, because I got that from playing with Billy and then Billy introduced me to other players and we did play in band situations and I got to play with better and better players too. We, we did a gig once with uh, John Hendricks and uh, he loved us. He, you know, he's singing the blues out in front of, uh, again, just Billy and I. 
we did the St. Louis Blues with Odetta once, and she was just in ecstasy because it, she could. She was the same way, and she just felt the rhythm. She really loved it, and it made it work. You know. You know what I also love about the way that you kind of told us about your history is that you you put a little moment on when you were 22 and you met Billy, and I just am conscious of the idea that so many of our students leave Berkeley when they're 22. And they've learned so much and they've met someone maybe who they think, okay, this person is going to be a musical partner or collaborator and they don't know what's ahead of them. And I think what's really interesting is a lot of us who um, know something about your career know more of the later things that came after that when you were um, working with people that we think of as in the Nashville scene. And I think a lot of students are like, okay, well, what happens in between there? Like, how do you get from working as you're working and learning all the things you're learning and then getting to the next place and, and sort of expanding your peer group and collaborator group? And, and you alluded to something right in the beginning. You said um, the stars and stripes thing. And can you tell that story? Would you mind telling that story? Oh, that's all right. That, um... That was the particular key that unlocked doors for me. And I would say just to, first of all, to respond to your question, the, um, each student that comes out of there at 22 years old is, I believe they're gonna run into a key. That's a big wide world. And if you play it for straight and, and you're honest and you're open about, you know, when you, when you meet people, if you do what you can do and you're willing to share. Like I said, most of the people that I've met, particularly the ones higher up, like Chet and Jerry, they are nice people. That's how they got there. They didn't get there by stepping over anybody. They got there by networking. They got there by association and by, you know, by doing the playing and working with other people. In my case, I just had this nutty idea that um, because I had met Rick Schoenberg, see, now it, it comes from, again, people I met. And I got into the ragtime thing, and then I started playing solo Joplin rags when I would do my solo concerts. And I found out right away that it was a two-way kind of a, a thing. Yes, the sting had just come out with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, the movie, and everybody was into Joplin. That was the year. And so I started playing Joplin rags, but I found that the audiences uh, would ask for, oh, play the sting, man. And I would pick, a, because that's how they identified rags. And I would pick one of the Joplin rags and I would start to play it. And I was true to the rag. So I had to do each section twice. And yes, I was rhythmic about it. It definitely had a beat, but they took a long time. They'd take four or five minutes, some of them to play all the way through the arrangement. You had to hear each part twice. And I would watch the audience kind of out of the corner of my eye. And I could see some of them were starting to remember what they had for dinner or what they had to do later, you know, and, and it wasn't completely holding their attention. People know, an audience knows when you're repeating something verbatim and they'll tune out even for just that chorus, they'll relax their attention a little bit and wait for something new to come along. This is another thing I tell my students. Anytime you perform anywhere, what the audience is actually doing is learning your performance. They are learning what you're doing and they'll pay attention, particularly if it's something new. And the fact is they can tell when it's new and when it's not because they've already learned some of it. They've, 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 hey, they have absorbed something. So they're not just watching the music, they're learning it. And that's where you have to be really audience aware. Well, I was very audience aware because I felt like I was boring them after a while, even though it was what they said they wanted to hear. 
So one night I was sitting with a, a friend of mine, and this is another oral tradition friend. He is actually primarily a fiddle player, but he also played guitar. And we would get together maybe once a month, and we were up in my kitchen, and we were doing what we called ragging the classics, which is that you just take snatches of anything you can think of, pieces of Carmen, you know, the opera or whatever, and you, you finger pick it. You turn it into a finger picking tune. And sooner or later, we got around to be kind to your web footed friends. You know, that part of the stars and stripes is the, is the part that everybody knows. Um, and, you know, we, we did it and we hacked around and then it was 10 o'clock. He packed up and he went home. And for some reason, it stayed with me. I was living in a co-op kind of a situation there. So we had a, a community record bin and I went over and looked. And sure enough, there was a recording of the Michigan State Band playing Sousa marches. And I thought, wait a minute now, let me hear how the rest of this thing goes. This might be very cool. And so I started playing the record, you know, just like working with the Chet records. And I heard the melodies go by and I could hear what the bass line was doing. And I figured the middle of the thing is just, well, of course the rhythm was wonderful because it's a marching band. So you, <laughs> there was no problem there, but it really felt like that kind of timing. And as I was playing with the different parts, I thought, hey, this is a lark. I'm going to learn this thing. I'm going to work this out. And then the next time the audience asks for a Sousa or for a, for a Scoplet Joplin rag, I'm going to play a Sousa march and I'll have the laugh on them. This will be a big joke, you know. And so I stayed up till six o'clock in the morning until I had assured myself that I was going to be able to play the entire thing. Even the piccolo part would go together. It works kind of like a Bach two-part invention. If you think of it that way, it's not that scary anymore. Um, so I, f I figured out all the positions for it. I couldn't play it, but I knew I was going to be able to. And I used to take the laundry down to the laundromat and I'd walk it down there and then I'd sit with the machines running so nobody could hear me. And I would practice this silly march. And, um, at one point, two, two ladies were loading their laundry up in fact. And I heard them as they went out the door, one of them said to the other one, I never heard anybody play a Sousa march on the guitar before. And I thought, aha, I'm on the right track. So um, I finally got a chance to introduce it at a, at a free gig. I played at a Harvard Square Church, the nameless coffee house it was. And they had never heard of me. And nobody knew what I was going to do. I just walked out on the stage and I played that march. And people started to giggle at first, like, what is this? You know, because I started at the beginning, you know, I played all of the trio and everything. And the further I went into it, you can hear it on the recording because I, I luckily they were taping the show and I got a hold of the recording afterwards and it went on my first rounder LP. And uh, that was that's really the other key was it got a chance to be distributed. No YouTube back then. That was the only way you could hear something was on a record. Uh, but by the by the end of the, the whole thing, the audience, when I got to the piccolo part, they were openly laughing, not at me, but with me. Because they were going, he's going to do the whole thing. He's crazy, you know, he's going to try it. And I got all the way to the end and they started to clap along and I finished the tune and they jumped out of their seats and just went, yahoo, nobody had ever heard anything like it. And I walked off the stage and I was gone. But the effect on me, it was just electric, you know, that I realized, wow, I did something more than I thought I was going to do. This worked out. The joke is on me because people took this very seriously and they wanted it and they wanted more of it. And I ended up going back and, and I ended up playing it all over the place. And eventually Chet Atkins heard about it. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want to hear you do this. He's, he, uh, uh, I got word from him because I'd gone to see him in concert. And uh, 
he let me know that he wanted me to come down to his office and play that for him. And so I did. And of course, I was absolutely terrified by that one. You can, everybody will tell you stories about trying to audition in front of Chet. You freeze. And it was just, that was the way he just scared the heck out of people, including me. But he was very kind to me. And after I couldn't even begin to play the thing, he said, come back tomorrow. And I came back and then I showed it to him. And then he took me home and we sat in his kitchen and I taught the whole thing to him. And then he said, put it on a cassette slow, you know, and, and leave it with me and I'll, I'll, I'll get it figured out, which he did. And then uh, we were friends after that right away because, uh, you know, so many people were after Chet to make me a star, Chet, you know. And I didn't want anything from him except to know him. Of course, I was so happy to meet him. He wanted something from me. And so we got along great, you know, as soon as I gave him that march. And I was told afterwards he was backstage at the Grand Old Opry driving everybody nuts. Hey, you got to listen to this. Hey, you got to listen to this. And then other players, Jerry Reed found out about it. And I ended up going up in his studio and teaching it to him. And a lot of other people began uh, began to hear about it. I think Glenn Campbell heard of it. And, um, oh, who was the banjo player that worked with Glenn all the time? Um, he, he particularly got, he tracked me down in a, at a, at a festival once he came there specifically to, to, because he wanted to get me to play it for him. So the piece opened the doors for me and all of a sudden I am meeting these top people, these amazing people. And they're taking me, they're, they're treating me as an equal because my idea was good enough. To, to say, yeah, this, this guy is worth listening to. And you know, when I play some other stuff, they got into that and they realized, yeah, besides that, he can actually play, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's important. That's so important. Everything you just said is that you were doing what really fed you emotionally and spiritually and musically, and you're doing it all the way and working really hard on it. And you were working on your overall musicianship and your playing. And so when something you did grabbed people's attention, then when you met them, you had a genuine relationship because it was sharing something you loved with them, something they really wanted to do that they loved. And then you, you could instantly back that up because you had worked for so long on developing your playing. Yeah. I had some nice experiences that way, Kim. The only the only guitar contest I was ever in, uh, I didn't mean to get in because I personally, I do not favor contests. They, they really, really, again, they scare me and I don't like being scared. I'm not comfortable that way. Uh, but a friend of mine uh, told me, hey, guess what? You're in, in, entered into a guitar contest. He had sent in my $7 as well as his own because he didn't have a car. <laughs> and I did. So I ended up driving because the contest was up in New Hampshire. And it was a huge contest. They had, I guess, 60 or 70 people entered in it, including Nashville people. It was a nationwide contest. And there I was all of a sudden entered in this contest. And I didn't know what the heck to do. But this was in 1975. And I had just created that Stars and Stripes. And I heard a couple other people, you know, warming up. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, this, this guy's from the Grand Old Opry or something. You know, one of the members of David Bromberg's band was there. They were just top people. And I thought, I, I, I can't compete with this. I'll, never, I, 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 ah, I'll bet they won't play a Sousa March. At least I can have some fun here. So I'll play the Sousa March. And I did. And I was such a, an underling. Nobody knew who I was. So they scheduled me. The, the thing was an outdoor festival that started at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I think they scheduled me for 20 after 10. 
So there were maybe four people on the side of the hill in the audience that heard me play. And I got a lot of applause for it. And, and then I got off the stage and I thought, well, phew, that's the end of that. And the contest went on the rest of the day and was supposed to end at six o'clock at night. And all these other people played and eventually it started to sprinkle on the audience, but they stayed right there because they were really good people playing, you know, as I said. And we got down to the six o'clock and they came in to announce the winners and they said, well, we have a three-way tie. And uh, the other two names uh, I won't put here, but um, the third name was mine. Mm. People are going, who, who? And the reason that they did this, they told me afterwards, so I had to play it again. We had a runoff and they said, you got to play that march again. So I played it again in the rain out and, you know, the guitar is getting sprinkled on and everything, but I'd finished it. I got through it. And I got this time, there was an entire hillside full of people. It was kind of like Woodstock on a smaller scale. And um, the whole audience was jumping up and down and they loved it, you know, and then about after all the three of us had played, the judges came back out and they announced, and the winner is me. Um, <laughs> and I go, oh, wow, you know, I won. Um, what they had actually done was to restage the thing because they had long since decided that I had won. They, decided, they didn't see anybody all day that played anything like that Susan March, but they realized that there were only six people on the hill then. So they would be awarding the first prize handmade guitar to someone that nobody had seen play. And so they deliberately staged that. Mm. So I didn't have to go around twice. That's amazing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the rest of the story is after that, they said, hey, hey, don't be mad at us. Come on backstage. We got some pizza and everything. And I went backstage and I played for them till three o'clock in the morning. They wouldn't let me stop. Mm. All of these, the judges and everything, just to play some more, man, we are with you. And they made me play just about everything that I knew. And that I'm saying that in response to your statement, Kim, that uh, it was not just uh, I wasn't just a one trick pony. Mm -hmm. I was able to hold the judges themselves enthralled for about three and a half hours after that. Just, you know, listening to what I could do. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. Um, Ian, what is on your mind in this conversation? What are you thinking about? That's just fascinating. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. I love that you you were able to uh, sort of knock it out of the park by doing something that's so so out there and like <laughs> bizarre, you know, like I think that like, you know, you did it and with like a, a healthy dose of like uh, self-conscious almost absurdity, right? That like, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. The joke was on me though, because once I played that for Chet, once he learned it, they started recording Sousa marches down there. John Knowles recorded one, mm -hmm. Chet recorded a couple of them, you know, suddenly everybody had to arrange Sousa marches. So I had started something, you know, that, that uh, people were actually intrigued by. And I think the other thing to the credit, maybe to my credit, but certainly to the credit of the arrangement is it moved guitar one more notch up. Yeah, it was in a way the beginning of people trying things on the guitar that why would you think you could play that on the guitar and some classical guitars uh, one in particular whose name I can't think of a Japanese fellow came out with pictures at an exhibit yeah arranged. Yamasha. yeah 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 yep. uh, it was just an attempt he said all right the guitar is more and more like a piano it'll play anything you can and the other guy who who used uh, stars and stripes as an encore piece regularly by the way was Vladimir Horowitz 
Mm. When he would finish the end of one of his concerts, very, very often the encore piece would be the Stars and Stripes Forever on the piano. You know, know, I I like so much about what you said. And I, I also love that. I think a lot of people when you're young, especially and a lot of our audience is the students, you're always worrying about planning, planning your career. And so much of what comes out in a lot of these conversations is that you plan your musicianship and you plan your practicing and you work, you plan working on what you love and your career comes unexpectedly. And that's what happened for you that, you know, you were at a competition because your friend needed a ride, Yeah, you know, but you were prepared. And so you came and you're like, well, I can't, I can't compete, quote unquote, traditionally with these people who have all of these chops, but I can do what I love. And then look what happened. That became this beautiful, not just win of the competition, but this beautiful moment in your life. And so many of your stories kind of have that theme, right? Like, I like that- the way you said that, Kim, because yes, I have always been doing something that I love. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in several instances, Billy uh, and I, in our joint career that we started together. I mean, we really liked each other's playing a lot. And we started to get offers. We had an offer to open for Steve Martin for 15 weeks out in Las Vegas. And we turned it down. We didn't want to do it. Uh, I didn't want that to turn into what, you know, was going to be, uh, first of all, scary again. And also, you know, driving me in a way that didn't, that I wouldn't love anymore. Didn't, because uh, I didn't want to be a star particularly. I wanted to be successful because I wanted to buy a house, but uh, just, you know, and also my father was always worried about me. Son, why don't you sell guitars instead of playing them? You know, that kind of thing, that kind of advice. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I stuck to it and I did what I loved and I, I'm still doing what I love. And uh, one of the things I have always loved is teaching, which is the other part of the oral tradition for me too, is sharing it. I love so, showing somebody else how to do this, how to do it, because it, it just uh, grabbed me, as, as Joseph Campbell used to say, the, the mythologist, the, the, the real thing is to be caught by something. If you can't leave it alone, if you've got to learn how to do that, I want to talk to you, because the, that kind of enthusiasm is what's going to carry you through. It's what carried me through. I didn't flunk out of high school, but it was sheer luck, because I spent all my time you know, with the Chet Atkins records because that was the thing, that was my absolute passion. And that's what took me there. And that has its own aura about it. And when somebody else meets you and they realize that you truly do love what you're doing, that you're truly passionate about it, and they see the results of it, that you're invested in it, that you've got the chops, you know, of course, because you've worked so hard at what you loved. And that, I mean, Chet and I immediately became friends. He didn't just want the arrangement. He wanted me. And he had, he started asking me to arrange other things, too. He had to play a graduation once at a college in, in Knoxville. And he called me up and said, God, do you know that da, 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 da thing, you know? And I said, well, sure, Chet, I know that. He said, would you record that and just send it down to me so I can learn it from you by ear? And there it went again. You know, he, he respected what I could do. And he treated me as an equal and he knew I wasn't trying to outrun him or anything. I just said, sure, Chet, I'll, I'll, I'll get it off this weekend. And the exchange was there between the two of us. The, the ready friendship was there because we both, he loved guitar, certainly, as much as I did. And uh, yeah. it, it worked. 
and it will work. It'll work for other, it'll work for the students. If you come out of the Berkeley and you absolutely love what you've learned and you love what you're doing, that, that key, that stars and stripes will be there somewhere. It won't look the same way. And that's what makes it hard to tell them. It's hard. It isn't what happens to you. Isn't going to look like what happened to me, but it's going to look like what happens to you. And you can tell me about it afterwards because it's going to be amazing. You know, it'll be in its own way. It'll do the same thing. So anyone part of it. That's an amazing piece of advice that your stars and stripes will be there for you. Yeah, I, I truly believe that it will. And I have seen it, you know, um, one of my Berkeley students went off and became the national. I told him to enter contests. I said, I don't like contests, but you seem to be pretty good at it. He went off and now he's the, or at least he was the national champion of Japan. He just decided to go for it, you know, and that door opened for him. Now all kinds of people in Japan want to hear him play. And, and um, he's found a key, he'll find another one. And that's the other thing about, it isn't just the stars and stripes. And, and I think Kim, you were saying this too, that led to something else. And then the something else leads to something else. And you look behind you and again, quoting J uh, Joseph Campbell, it looks like your whole career was planned out in advance after <laughs> Everything just fitted together when it was supposed to. How'd they do that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I can't even imagine better advice to end on. I, I think that that's so beautiful. I'm gonna, I'm glad we record these because just for myself, I'm gonna be making more coffee and listening to them. Um, Cheryl, oh, yeah. do you have a final yeah. thought here um, before we finish well, this pot? I, I, I feel the same way, Kim. God, you just uncovered so many deep, I don't know, you know, just deep lessons and, and um, really essential advice at the same time. And, um, and I really loved, you know, how you're talking about rhythm and time and those experiences. So thanks for sharing those. I, this is really, I think this is, this is a really good one for everybody, you know, all, not just guitarists, I think just anyone who's, who's trying to do what they love. So thanks for sharing all that with us. Absolutely. Well, I'll leave, I'll leave you with one general piece of advice I give, which is learn as much as you can by ear. Learn as much of it as you can. And Ron Carter said this too in his, uh, the, the webinar that I mentioned earlier. He said, learn this stuff by ear. It should go directly in here and then to your instrument. When you play and like if you whistle while you play, like Toots Thielman's used to, uh, are you whistling what you're playing or are you playing what you're whistling? It shouldn't matter. It's, it should be the same thing. It's coming out of you and it's being expressed directly through the instrument. And that is, that, that's essentially what makes it musical. Yes, it's nice to have YouTube and be able to imitate what all these people are doing because you build technique that way. But the, the things that are going to matter the most, I think, and the things that you'll remember the most is what you do by ear, because that also employs your memory. Um, all I, I, I didn't know how to write down what I learned from the Chet records. I, ha I could only retain it by remembering it and incorporating it literally into myself. And that happens with, with that direct connection between the sounds that you want to make and the instruments you're going to make them on. I think that's the key to really mastering an instrument is to make it do what you hear. That's amazing. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, Ian, uh, do you have a last thought before we? Yeah, I, I had, I really liked sort of the genuineness and like approaching 
like you were saying, Kim, like working on all your things as a musician and an instrumentalist, but like the career things, like focus on your musicianship. And like, if you end up talking to Chet Atkins and Doc Watson, just be a normal person and be a good person, you know? So, right. yeah. Well, Guy, thank you so much for being with us. Um, let's do a virtual coffee cheers here, everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Cheryl Bailey, Ian Steed, and Guy Van Duzer. And uh, we'll see you next time on Coffee Talk. Thank you.